we are going to go on a wee journey. I'd like to share with you this morning the actual experiences of both people who've survived stroke and also um, the people who love them and support them through that process. To, to actually, I suppose, trigger some thinking um, from our perspective as clinicians and to look at some strategies that we can use that have been shown within the evidence base to make a difference to people, okay? Um, I'm not gonna speak for a whole hour, I say this, although Marg looked at me and said, hmm, <laughs> we'll see. Um, but I really do wanna give us the opportunity to discuss some of this and to talk about issues that we may have faced from our own perspective, okay? If I say anything that makes no sense or it feels like it's frankly wrong, you're allowed to interrupt and, and to indicate that, but otherwise let's just discuss at the end, I think. Okay. Oh, I don't want it to do this. I just want it to go forward. Ah. So, what do we know already? We know very much that stroke is a prolonged and a very pro potent stressor. There's no news, I don't think, for anybody here from, from that point of view. It's one of those things that actually sneaks up on people, it doesn't disappear, and it brings with it lots of challenges along the way and lots of ongoing stress. That is, people need to adjust to a changed life situation. And it's not just a changed life situation potentially for a small amount of time, but it is an ongoing change. The people who survive the stroke and the people around them who love them and support them are part of this. And in fact, the network goes around even further. So for some people that network is for them, for their immediate family, for their extended family, for their friendships, for their community integration as well. Um, way back now, and that's more than 20 years ago, more than, yeah, 20 years ago, Evans described it as a family dilemma, that in fact, um, this work was, was placing stroke in the context of a family systems approach. And I think that's really important for us to hold on to throughout this process. And then more recently, but still a fair while ago, I loved the work that, that Palmer and colleagues published because they talked about stroke being a double crisis. And by that, they were discussing the fact that people not only do they need to adjust to or cope with or actually face the challenge of having a significant health problem, but they also have to face the challenge of becoming part of a health system. And for most of us, unless, until we actually have to cope with an illness, the health system is like a foreign culture. For those of us who work in, the, in that system, I think we forget. You pop up the front, just make yourself comfy. Um, is that I think we forget that we know a lot about the systems that we work in, but the people who come in, particularly under a great deal of stress, have no idea how the health system works. And I have to say, even as somebody who knows the system well, worked in it across the continuum from acute care all the way through to community for many years and still do, it changes so much and so rapidly that even for somebody like me to re-enter it 
as a supporter or a, or a patient myself. It's a pretty weird place. And I think we always need to keep that in mind, that it's our place, not necessarily the patient's place. And they find it very, very difficult to enter into that, into that culture and understand what's going on. And that's something we'll talk about when we talk about people's experiences. So it's kind of a double whammy. Not only are you facing with potentially death for some people and a, a long drawn out illness, but you're also facing with a whole, uh, facing a whole new foreign culture that you're not particularly familiar with. So it's not surprising that when you actually look at the adjustment literature after stroke, there is ongoing stress, people are actually called upon to bring, on, to bring out all of their coping strategies. Um, some people cope by wanting to avoid, some people cope by actually over-emotionalising, um, some people actually tend to um, withdraw from situations. So you'll see all of those different coping strategies as you work with people and as they follow that trajectory. So really, in a sense, the aim of, of this... I don't want it. Huh. Press all the buttons if you're down. Um, the aim of, of this particular study was to talk to people themselves and to gain some understanding from their perspective <coughs> of how they experienced our stroke care continuum. What is it like when you come into it what are the sorts of things that you talk about? How did it feel over time? And in particular, I was interested in what their responses were along the way and how they felt. So both behavioural responses and emotional responses. And also what they perceived their needs were, particularly needs that they felt were unmet. It seems to be a good recipe for us to talk to people about what did we do well and what did we do not so well? because maybe we can make a difference. Okay, so very straightforward. Um, there we go. So, did I miss a slide? No, that's a test. <laughs> How many of us are awake? Are awake? <laughs> So the, I spoke to 14 wonderful dyads. By that I mean um, pairs of people who were paired up, so the stroke survivor and their close other or the person who supported them through the process. Okay, so 28 participants in total, but talked to them as, as pairs along the way. Six were men and eight were women who had a stroke. Ten of them had aphasia, and you can see there the Western aphasia battery, aphasia quotient ranged from 75 to 92.8. So they were really um, moderate to mild, um, had moderate to mild aphasia. And four um, didn't have an aphasia and hadn't been diagnosed with language impairment. The median age, which is not surprising given this population, was 66 years, but with a really big, in fact humongous range, of 34 to um, 85. And we know that, that stroke in younger people is an issue that is certainly being investigated a great deal more because of the, the time of your life that it happens in, and, and it's often at a, at a difficult life stage. Um, their median length of inpatient rehab, so that's being in, some, in an inpatient role in, in rehab was 29 days. Okay, 
Um, the median time post-stroke was uh, six months to 11 years, so an average of 2.3 years. So we're going to actually get a sense of the health system over time as well, and we need to bear that in mind, okay? And then time in rehab, whether it be inpatient or, or outpatient, ranged from four days to nearly a year. Okay, and you can bet your bottom dollar the person that had nearly a year of rehab was somebody who was towards the ta the long end of the time post posting uh, of the time post stroke. And within the the sort of family support people, we had six wives, five husbands, and three daughters. Okay, so that's just who those people were. It was a pretty straightforward qualitative um, design with respect to using in-depth interview as the, as the means of collecting data. Um, it was an open-ended, non-directive interview. People were allowed to take as much time as they needed. Um, we were incredibly generous with their time and their ideas and their, and their concepts that they wanted to share. And it started off with very broadly, tell me about how it's been for you how it's been for you from the stroke till now, all the way through. So people were given the invitation to talk about things um, in any way they chose so that they felt comfortable with it. Some of them told the story from the most recent things that had happened. Some of them started way back at the beginning and some of them travelled through the process in kind of a, a re, an iterative um, cycling process. Some started with the worst experience they had. Some started with the best experience they had. Some started with the best health professional they had had an interaction with. Some started with the worst. So everybody brought to it their own personal flavour of, of how they were talking about their experience. The, the interviews were all audio taped and then transcribed verbatim so they could be analysed and um, I applied Kathy Shamaz's constructivist grounded theory um, analysis techniques, which is really looking for the meaning constructed by people in their discourse when they're talking to you about their experiences. So it takes, if you like, textual data rather than numerative data or numerals, quant data, and you analyse that to make some sense of not only what happens to each individual, but across the data set, across the experiences, to actually come up with a conceptualisation that reflects themes within the data, that reflects concepts or categories within that data, that can inform, in this case, hopefully inform us better meeting the needs of people who've had a stroke and the people who love and care for them. Okay, so... Oops. What emerged from the, from the actual interviews and from the analysis was this, if you like, image. For me, it, it felt very much like the people that I talked to were taking me on a, on a sort of a stepped kind of journey. But it was like being on stepping stones. So choosing an image like a stepping stone path kind of made a lot of sense. The good thing about a stepping stone pathway is that you can move forward or back or you can go sideways. It's not a road in the same sense. And 
so it's been chosen for that very reason because it was very clear that for some people they didn't go very far on the steps and sometimes they went around on the steps in the same place. Some of them jumped a few steps and came back again. So it's not necessarily, if you like, a sequential process. Despite the fact that when we talk about it, it'll I present it, if you like, in the time course that tended to be across people's stories. Does that make sense? Okay, so what was really clear for everybody was they, I can't, you think it, I'll get it by the end. <laughs> I promise, okay. <laughs> um, everybody started with um, a sense of shock or feeling the shock. Shock was a word that was used a lot around the early stages. And this is Mary. Mary was the um, wife uh, of a man who had a stroke. And Mary says, I got a phone call on the Saturday that he'd had the stroke and I was absolutely stunned. And then quite frankly, I didn't know what to do. The sense was palpable when people talked about finding out, particularly when family members talked about finding out about the stroke. Because often it didn't happen at home, sometimes it did. Often the person was taken to hospital and then they were actually contacted. So this sense of, of shock and not knowing what to do. All of a sudden being in an event in your life that you have no previous experience for in many cases and you don't know what to do. So Mary was, was kind of um, expressing what many of the, the family members expressed. And Bob, I think it's Bob. Bob was a stroke survivor and Bob says, I was simply numb. Then I realised I was in hospital, but I didn't really know why I was there. So you've got both sides of the coin reflecting a sense of being almost removed out of everyday life without any warning and without any context of why this was, why this was happening. So both feeling pretty lost, this feeling of shock at the beginning. Now if you work in the acute hospital setting, what that means is you're working with people who are actually dealing with shock. And we know about shock. We'll talk a little bit about the emotions that go with shock in a moment when we look at the sort of feelings that people talked about they have. But it kind of means that there's a bit of a cloud around you. And it's, it's a bit like interacting through a fog. And I think for us, it's really important to remember that. Okay? So that was that first sort of messy time. There was no sense of how long this lasted. It, it varied for some people. And it came back again often when somebody told them that in fact, perhaps their husband wasn't going to be able to return to work. There was this other episode of shock. So it's, it's kind of a repeating profile. She says going backwards again. The next, it is, it's the pathway. Yeah, this is, thank you, no. <laughs> She's such a good therapist. <laughs> um, so, so the next thing that seemed to emerge from the data was this, this concept of expecting the best. <clears throat> And expecting the best is really, I think, well described by Jim, who was the husband of, of, um, of his wife who 
who had survived a stroke. And, and Jim says, well, you know, she was in the best place. In fact, I heard this a lot because his wife had been um, admitted to a stroke unit. And there was something about people knowing that the best place to go if you have a stroke is a stroke unit. And people even talked about the fact, you know that the evidence for people in stroke units means that they have better outcomes. And people were talking to me about this in their interviews. So there's been a lot of trying to understand the process for many people since they had their stroke. And he says, they said she was in the best place. They did, they told me this was the best place for her. And I thought it would be okay, we'd get through, you know, we would get through because yes, this is really tough. I don't quite know what's going on, but everybody says, look, she's in the best place. She's getting the best care. Don't worry, just, just hang in there for now. And Jim was actually like most of the people that I spoke to around this, this early expecting the best feeling. What Jean says, and, and Jean had survived a stroke, says, in the early stages, my stroke, Jean had a, a mild aphasia, doctors said you'd never be able to speak again. My sole motive was to prove them wrong. There was no sense of fear, I'd just work at it. And in fact, this was, this, this was the quote that made um, Jean, Joan um, Tierney get kind of excited because the next thing, um, I said at the time when we were talking about this was, you know, if I had a dollar for every person who says to me that they can now talk or they can now walk or they can now do activities in the garden because the doctor said I would never talk, I would never walk, I would never do anything again and told my family that really the best thing to do was to consider a nursing home or um, not to have very high hopes. I'd be a really, really rich woman if I had a dollar for each of those comments. And, and one of the interesting things is it becomes a motivator and sometimes I'm not even sure and it doesn't matter whether or not um, somebody has said to the person, you'll never talk again. It's the sense that they were given um, what we probably say as a realistic prognosis you may never be able to talk the way you've, you, you know, you talked before the stroke again. And we think we're being realistic, we're actually giving, you know, a po giving a, a truthful response, which is interpreted by um, the person themselves as it's going to be horrific, it's going to be awful, it's going to be really tough. And, and I think we need to be aware of how highly primed people are to actually take something that might only have a tinge of negativity to it and interpret it as being god-awful. So, you know, it often means then that the team have to get together and say, okay, what's happening? Um, we'll see that often this creates for, for people a trigger for depression at the time too. Okay, so we've, we've sort of got feeling shocked and popping back and forth from feeling shocked to, to then this, this seesaw of, or swing of expecting the best and saying, you know, I'm going to be different to everybody else. I still speak to people now. I do some work in South Australia with a, with an, with a, a group of people who have um, aphasia and they often talk about the fact, you know, 20, 30 years post that they're still working towards getting their language to be functioning the way they want it to be functioning. 
and certainly they're making changes and they actually measure those changes and they show me when I go back each year to actually talk to them. So that expecting the best doesn't necessarily go away, it often is a tinge throughout. One day I... The next experience um, for people was this sense of starting to acknowledge or recognise the changes. What was really interesting here is that actually people talked about it not happening at the same time for the person with the stroke and for the family member. Sometimes it being the person with the stroke recognising changes in their skill level and their functioning earlier than the family member. But overall it tended to be family members saying, oh, I started to realise there really were changes and they didn't seem to be going away. And talking about the difficulties of this um, lack of convergence of feelings. So how do you cope when you've got um, a spouse who's thinking, oh no, this is not getting that much better, and the person with stroke themselves thinking, oh yeah, I'm really going to keep going and I'm going to keep get, getting better and better and better, and wanting to hold on to some, some really major sort of hope around what's going to change, and that, that seemed to be important. Olga talks about um, her husband and she talks about the fact that, you know, when he started to recognise the changes, he went back into his shell like a tortoise. It was very hard to get him out, so this sense of withdrawal. And she found that really difficult because it actually meant for her, she also tended to, to be in this forced withdrawal. She talked about issues around um, not feeling comfortable to, to go out and do things and not to be withdrawn, um, that sort of issue. And tending to what happened, she said, we kind of shrank. So it wasn't only her husband sort of retreating into his shell like a tortoise, but as a couple they did. And their, their coupledom changed. And that was really important because she said, you know, this is the man I love, I'm not going to leave him struggling, but we both became kind of isolated and both of us didn't have a lot of support around us. It's interesting, Marg Posibon um, is doing her PhD looking at spouses of people with um, primary progressive aphasia, <coughs> a degenerative um, disorder in the, in the dementia group, and, and very similar discussions with, with talking to the spouses of people with primary progressive aphasia. That is, not only does the person's life shrink, but the couple's life shrinks. And you often become, um, as, as Olga talked about, yeah, I, I look after him, but that's not how we were. We were very much a shared couple. So that coupled and finding your place in it is quite a challenge. Um, then from the person's perspective, um, from the, per the stroke survivor themselves, Carl says, some people when they realised I still couldn't speak, just wandered away. They put me in the too hard basket and I was lonely, sad and angry. So this sense that that extended support network shrinks. Okay? And we know that, that social support, just having somebody to go out and have a cuppa with, or just having somebody who pops in and gives you a smile, is a protective factor. 
for, for low mood and depression. So what happens is the couple are feeling like they're getting sort of thrown together a lot more and often not wanting that, either of them, but also their, their extended social network reducing and not being there to support either the, the um, spouse or the person with the stroke. It's interesting, um, and I can't remember, it, it wasn't Olga, but, but one of the wives said, you know, it's really hard when your husband's good friends stop coming by, when they stop actually making an effort. They all visited, and I've heard this story with people with brain injury, year after year after year, that sort of early visitation hanging in there, and then this difficulty, particularly for people with aphasia. Okay, so, We've had this feeling the shock, expecting the best, recognising the changes and this vacillation between all of those. Following the recognising the changes was very much the, the feeling the sadness. That is, recognising that not only um, are change, have changes occurred, but those, that recognition having a, an emotional consequence and that being sadness. So Kathy says, Kathy um, is the daughter of, of a woman who had a pretty severe stroke at the time and Kathy says, I knew mum had a stroke and she was different. She was just going to take a long time to hopefully mend and then Kathy said in a really quiet voice, if she does. So Kathy was really interesting giving a daughter's perspective of the change in their relationship the change in the fact that she had always seen her mum as a guiding light and they talked about everything, um, they talked about what Kathy was choosing to do with her life and for her that was a real loss, there was a real sadness at losing her mum in that role. So it was a loss for her as well as for her mum who was losing um, a busy working life, she was a very active person. Um, so that feeling sadness was happening for both people in that relationship. Bob says, well, yeah, it's different, yeah. I just had to make sure I was me. And Bob captures the importance of self, of, of finding, of not losing self. He says, you know, all I had, I had to find out that I was still Bob. And there were lots of things about Bob that were really special. There were, that from his family's perspective, from his perspective, he was a great, Raconteur, and he had a mild aphasia, and that really, really made him cross because he, he was not so good at telling jokes anymore. Um, he would often get the sequence wrong or he'd give the punchline too quickly, which is kind of how I tell jokes anyway. <laughs> I think there's a special skill, but his, his skill had changed. But he was also one of those people who, um, as his wife said, you know, we used to go on trips, we'd go on bus trips, we'd go on holidays, and he was always the person out there chatting away, talking to people. It was who he was. And even a relatively moderate to mild aphasia really put a spanner in the works for Bob. So he had to find out that, yes, inside he was still him and he had to do things a bit differently. He, he was really good. He actually has a collection of visual jokes, of jokes that are just of photographs um, of things that make you laugh. And um, we've shared that with other people in a group around the fact that some of the photos that Bob has, one of the ones I remember is there's a, a Scottish 
um, man with a kilt on and there's a little baby sitting at his feet looking up, giggling. And, and Bob says, every time when I bring this out and show people this, everybody laughs. And, and we know laughing's really good for us. So he had actually found another way of enjoying his sense of humour and sharing his sense of humour through photographs. Um, had a great collection of, of really um, funny and, and, and good visual input. So we had this feeling sadness and then there was the getting on with living and remember it's not necessarily sequential. So at different points in time, after recognising the changes, people sometimes didn't have a period of sadness but they just got on with living. Um, sometimes for some, I have to say, the feeling of sadness didn't actually really go away and was still palpable in the room when I was with them. So this sense of loss and not being able to get on with living in the same way. But getting on with living is pretty important in the sense that it was the goal. Um, you talk to people and they say this often and all of us, regardless of the diagnostic population you work with, People say, that's really what you want to do. You want to get on with living. You, get on, you want to get on with your life and, and leave some of the health issues and, and health people behind. Go away. Okay. So, Jim says, remember Jim is, is the husband um, of, a, of a woman who had a stroke. He says, it's like I told you, she can just look at me. We don't need words. His wife had quite he had probably the most severe aphasia in the group. And there's something about the relationship for people who are older or who are in a longer term relationship where communication doesn't seem to be quite so important. Younger couples, it was really a challenge to deal with, with um, an acquired aphasia. Really, really tough work. But for Jim, he said, look, you know, we can just look at each other. Sometimes I ignore, I know what she wants to say, he'd say, but because, you know, again, we're talking to each other. Uh, I'm talking to them together. I'm not talking to them separately, okay? So there are some of those things that are really important that you can get on with a relationship and, and being a couple, even if some of the chatting and the conversation and the easy way of talking is that much harder. They had lots of shared experiences that they, they, they actually, he could reminisce about um, with her. And finally, Linda, I love what Linda says, and in fact, the OTs amongst you will love what Linda says too, because Linda actually puts the focus on occupation or doing. Well, it isn't like I can do everything. It's just that this is me and I'm doing. When I'm, and what I'm doing, I like. So she's getting on with living. She's getting on with doing the things she wants to do. And again, that was a theme that pretty much went across all 14. That is, you know, you've, you really, really have to get back to doing. Doing really helps. Doing opened lots of doors. Doing opened doors to making other friendships, meeting new people, meeting new people as you are in the moment and not as you were or as you necessarily want to be. Um, it also, as, as several people said, doing and being active gets your mind off it. It's choosing what you do that was really important. So for people with aphasia, it was often less language dependent tasks, walking, being able to actually go out and look at beautiful scenery, listening to music, 
um, sometimes doing art or joining an art therapy group. Um, those sorts of things were really important for people who had more physical difficulties and a, and a more dense hemiplegia. It was actually often um, doing activities that weren't as dependent on that. Getting back to driving was huge for a lot of, of these people because it was their way of getting out into the community. And I have to say it was the, it was the one new episode of feeling depressed that for most people if they weren't able to get back to driving was the trigger for quite a significant period of depression. Okay, so that's the little, if you like, um, stepping stones. Again, let me assure you that it does go back and forth. But it does seem to have a trajectory throughout. And when I went back and had a look too, well, during the analysis, it seems to be associated with the feeling the shock, as I said to you, if you work in the acute hospital system as a clinician, or um, if you come into the acute hospital system as a patient, you, you, the clinicians are working with somebody who's in shock and, and you need to recognise that. We'll see what, what people say they needed. But also um, families themselves need to recognise that it's okay to feel that sense of shock. So that happens in the acute system and we know length of stay is probably around sort of um, less than eight days now. So it's not a very long period of time and this probably extends now. Um, to the next level, go away. Um, expecting the best seemed to be happening during rehab. And there's a lot of focus in rehab about, yeah, we're getting there, motivation, doing lots of work, you know, a strengths-based approach, which is really important that we all use. But it does give you that sense of expecting the best. So this is a sort of a honeymoon kind of phase. I'm in rehab. You know, you go to rehab because you're going to get better, all of those sorts of things. And then what was interesting is that the recognising the changes tended to happen with discharge. And in our health system, that means it tends to happen when your interactions with a health service or, or health providers or rehabilitation workers or clinicians is reducing. So people are most vulnerable approaching discharge or just after discharge and most vulnerable when they go back into the community. Um, that means clearly that we need to consider that when we think about our health dollar and where um, it's best to spend the health dollar for some people. Okay, so if we have a look at now, go, go through each of those, the, the goal here is to not just look at what people described as their experiences, but then what you'll see is there's their needs and the strategies. I've put together the strategies that are strategies that have pretty good proven evidence in the literature that make a difference to people in these situations. Does that make sense? trying to find answers maybe. So in, in this early filling the shock stage, you, nobody's going to be surprised at this. If we've ever had an experience of shock, you know, you feel confused. There's a sense of anguish and anguish is an intense emotional response. It's a word we often don't hear a great deal anymore, but it's an intense emotional response where you don't know what to do. You, you actually feel, oh, what happened? Well, this not being able to make a decision. 
as, as families often said, it's this sort of taking every day at a time, each day at a time, and sometimes each moment at a time, because this sense of anguish means that it's very hard to look forward. A sense of frustration and a sense of helplessness. And I think every one of us has worked with people um, or has had those sorts of experiences. Cathy says this, she says, I wasn't unhappy about the care. <coughs> this is during the early stages for her mum. It seemed like they were doing their jobs. This is the part that made me feel a little bit sick. But nobody was friendly or kept me in the picture. The fact that she said nobody was friendly really bothered me. Um, and I thought, well, maybe this is a younger woman who's, you know, much more proactive in the world. That theme didn't just belong to Kathy by any means. People even said that staff weren't kind from their perspective. Okay, remember this is, this is the lived experience. This is whatever you went home with. It is not an indictment on any of us as, as clinicians, but it's how the person's feeling. Is this primarily in the acute setting or in the rehab setting? This is primarily in the acute setting. Um, and at times, as I said, you know, when people started, they would talk about the best person they'd worked with, but this is very much primarily in that feeling the shock phase. So if you think about the contributors to that feeling, then it probably very much is that people are not processing information very well. People are feeling incredibly vulnerable, which then emphasises that we need to be aware of that, that that vulnerability is huge, both for a family member and for the person with stroke themselves. They talked about, you know, when I said, so what do you reckon would help here? What would your needs be? You're absolutely right. I could have talked for a minute. I better hurry. Okay. <laughs> um, it's these, these interviews are just, they're so, they're so rich. They said that they needed regular, repeated and consistent provision of kind and clear explanations. The regularity and the repetition was across everybody and um, talking about what they wanted in this early stage was tell me about stroke. I don't know what it is. I might have had a, a grandparent, but tell me about the condition. Can I expect progress? And what are you going to do? What sort of treatment can I expect? Give me a context to operate in. And again, none of this is, is rocket science. But the sorts of things that have been shown to be effective in the literature are things like having a dedicated team member to address family needs, particularly in this early stage, to actually have one person who is working with the family. And it may well be the speech pathologist, if the, if particularly if the person with stroke has a, has a severe aphasia, it might be a social worker, it might be an OT, it might be a physio. So it's just having that one port of call that tends to make a difference. Um, there's, there's a lot of work around the fact that active information strategies are the only ones that work from an education perspective. Pamphlets don't work, leaflets don't work, sitting and talking with somebody and then just getting up and going um, and not coming back to it doesn't work. So when you talk about active strategies, there are issues about them being multimedia so that the person can actually read it, they can listen to somebody else's potential experiences, um, etc and um, that you come back and you discuss it. So it's not just 
let me tell you about a stroke and this is what happens, but it's actually having education. And education in the acute system is something that is more and more being tested with some um, randomised trials that the, the results are still not out on. But the idea of education being from the very early days, once survival is assured, um, is more and more important. The Scottish Intercollegiate Guideline Network have said that counselling and every one of their um, recommendations since 2010 says that there's, there's A-level evidence for that. You need to have counselling available in this, along the continuum, but particularly in the acute stage. And I don't know how many of you work where there's a counsellor always available. I know that social workers are spending a hell of a lot of time looking for discharge destinations and looking for beds elsewhere or processing information so that the person can move on in this trajectory, but who don't have very much time and get frustrated because they don't have time for counselling. Um, the, there's a Cochrane review that says exactly the same thing. And I think um, Abby Foster's work, um, who has just finished her PhD last year, looking at acute aphasia management and acute aphasia management pathway is really worth having a look at if you work in the acute system. Abby's work is lovely. She's down at Monash now. Okay, so some, some pretty basic things, but there are programs out there now that we can have a look at. And I know just from the work that um, clinicians have done across lots of different health networks that education packages are available, they're often co-taught or co-delivered with somebody who's had a stroke. Those sorts of issues can make a difference. Okay, so the next, um, I think I said all of that. Yep. The planned follow-up issues, it's interesting when you look at outcome measures, um, information improves, um, clearly improves knowledge, but it also improves patient satisfaction. <coughs> so your hospital get really excited because the patient satisfaction scores go up um, and it reduces depression scores when you measure depression in that um, early time. Um, and you can see that. So that's the work of, of Smith et al and Forster and both of those are systematic reviews of data. Okay. So that remember the next sort of phase that we talked about was expecting the best and this is where there's lots of hope, don't stomp on people's hope. Um, hope is the sort of thing that keeps you going. Again there's lovely research out there from, from Felicity Bright in um, New Zealand looking at those issues. Optimism about recovery and we, we've often said that people tend to have a bit of denial at this phase. Denial is, can be a wonderfully protective mechanism. And so working with the person through the process of, of recognising what they can and can't do, staying with a strengths-based approach is really important. And Mary catches this beautifully about her husband when she says, we thought if he persisted, he'd be successful. Most of us, if you keep doing something and you keep practising, then you get better at it and you're going to succeed. Neurolog acquired neurological impairment is one of those things that that, that rule doesn't work with frequently and that's hard for people to actually um, comprehend. Um, what people talked about then was the discussion of realistic expectations. They would have liked that in a, in a kind and clear manner 
Um, but they wanted it to be presented with respect to what the person would be able to do with their day-to-day -day functioning. So not big things like that going back to work. That's a huge concept to hang on to. But in day-to-day -day functioning, will they be able to manage their self-care? Will they be able to manage you know, instrumental activities of daily living, those sorts of things? Will they get really tired? And they talked about wanting to know that in, in terms of the immediate future. And then to also get a sense of what long-term abilities might be like. Okay, So you can see that they're asking for a sense of, of future, but with a focus on present. Um, is how I described it when I looked at their comments. They, family members, wanted more participation in therapy sessions. They feel locked out. They feel that, um, and they recognise often with good reason. They often say, look, I know we really want to get the best out of the sessions, but I had no idea. The idea that therapy is something that happens between two people behind closed doors. Um, that you, you have a sense of not knowing what's going on and wanting to be part of that. So there being, if you like, a family support component to helping somebody um, adjust to the changes associated with stroke. And they talked about wanting more written information. You don't remember very well at these points. So the literature does say actively involve patients and carers in the rehabilitation process as a member of the team. I think we pay lip service to that often and sometimes we do it really well and other times we don't do it quite so well because of being time poor or resource poor. Um, acknowledging the fact that carers have a dual role, that they're both our colleagues and they're also clients and that's often a very difficult balancing trick. Um, ongoing education, don't ever think that because you've told somebody about what to expect they're going to remember that or they're going to be able to call upon that from their memory. So you need to be able to continue that process. And um, almost all the guidelines now um, suggest that what we need to do is directly assess care needs, particularly in the emotional domain with respect to depression and anxiety. Okay, um, recognising the changes um, usually is the trigger for depression. So you get awareness and you get depression, and we've talked about this before with respect to people with um, traumatic brain injury. It's awareness is often, often gets in the way of, of actually being able to apply yourself to working in rehab, but when you have awareness, you often feel so depressed that that gets in the way too. So we've got this double-edged sword. Same issues here. Often there's anger, and often the anger is directed at the health system. Um, you recognise that things aren't getting any better and it's your fault, you haven't done the right thing. I heard about other people with a stroke much worse than his and they're getting better. I heard about other people with a stroke much worse than mine, they got better, why am I not getting better? It's got to be your fault. And people tend to start shopping potentially at this point, either shopping for approaches that they've read about in the public media, which are often not the best things to shop for, or go to a different clinician, or want to go to a different rehab centre, etc. Um, there's a sense often too for people who've survived stroke of feeling guilty that they're not getting better or a sense of a family member having a sense of guilt for being frustrated and getting um, less tolerant of the person who's had the stroke and fear what if it doesn't change what if it stays like this kind of feelings 
um, social withdrawal we already talked about and isolation and this whole disruption in roles and roles are really important for us in our lives so you need to explore the person's roles and also the impact it has on the other roles within the family. Um, I love what Jim says. Jim says, the most wonderful help for me and my wife is the group and we only found it because we met Lou through Finn's sister. Why I've left that exactly, well, with changing of names, as they said it was, they actually didn't find out about the support group through the actual hospital or the rehab centre. They found out about the support group through Lou and Lou had also had um, a stroke and told them about this and, said, and he'd heard about it through Finn's sister. So this sense of, of this networking happening and sometimes it's purely accidental that people find the good, the good things to actually move forward with. So again, it's not, it's a, none of it's rocket science, emotional support and practice, practical assistance. It's interesting, people really wanted to talk about hopes and fears and didn't feel I'd been given permission to do that frequently. To sort of talk about the, being scared about, um, is it gonna happen again? People said that um, sexuality and intimacy was, was actually rarely truly discussed with them and the fear that they weren't going to be able to resume their sexual um, life with their partners um, because it might trigger another stroke. Oh, lots, of, lots of myths that people had and talked about, being frightened about. But also particularly in the older population, remember the oldest person in this group was in their 80s and not wanting to talk to people. They never would consider bringing up sex by themselves. It needs to be, to be brought up um, by us as, as, as workers in rehabilitation. Um, they wanted to have more information before discharge. Now I know we have